Amen. All right. Well, we just want to let the children head off to the back, as well as the youth this morning. We've got youth down in the youth center this third Sunday of the month for the youth. So feel free to head on out. But we are continuing on in our summer series called Voices from the Past, Minor Prophets with a Modern Message. And we're going to be looking at the book of Micah this morning. So feel free to turn there now. And as we begin, uh, I thought it'd be worthwhile to share with each of you something that somebody shared with me quite some time ago. And it's a few similar phrases that you can say that make it easy for you to remember what justice, mercy, and grace mean. And there's two words that we're going to be talking about a lot today, justice and mercy. But here's how these words were first described to me in a catchy way. So justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Again, justice is getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, we'll see this morning that these are only partial definitions of what these words really mean. And although these descriptions are a good way to remember these words, basic definitions, there's more than meets the eye to what these words really mean. Now, justice and mercy were traits that were advised by, for the Israelites to display many times in the Old Testament. God told them over and over, be people of justice, be people of mercy. Um, and he continued to tell them this leading up to the exile. There are also traits that we're still called to display today. And hopefully by the end of this morning, not only will we have a better understanding of what mercy and what justice are and what these traits are meant to be for us, but also how we're called to be characterized by these traits as well. Now, the minor prophet book of Micah talks about how these traits of justice and mercy uh, were, were de he desired them for all of his people. And how the Israelites uh, were called to be people of justice and mercy, yet how they had wandered away from these character qualities. And we will indeed uncover this truth this morning, but in order to do so, we need to start at the beginning of the book of Micah. And so we're going to start in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. And it says here in the beginning of Micah that the word of the Lord, that this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this book contains a message telling about the destruction of Samaria and Jerusalem that Micah saw and that he was foretelling. And we know that this took place between about 750 and 686 BC because we know this because uh, it talks about Jotham who reigned from about 750 to 735. 
Ahaz, who reigned from 735 to 715, and then Hezekiah, who reigned from 715 to 686. So we know approximately the time when all of this was taking place. And in these times, Israel and Judah, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, the two kingdoms of Israel, had risen to places of economic affluence and prosperity, but they had also fallen to low places of spiritual disobedience. So for this reason, if you were to read chapter 1 of Micah, verses 3 through 16, it's going to explain to you that Samaria and Jerusalem were going to experience judgment. And not just judgment, but that Samaria was actually going to be turned into a heap of rubble. So complete destruction. And you would see that if you read chapter 1, verse 6. And it also explains that both Judah in the south, Israel in the north, would be taken into exile. Now, the towns, this is interesting, the towns that Micah chooses to mention in chapters 1, verses 10 through 15, if you were to read those five verses, or six verses, were the Israelite towns that led from the coast, leading all the way up to Jerusalem, and they were the towns that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, would actually conquer on his way to overthrowing Jerusalem. Now, the descriptions of these towns were also filled with poetic word plays. If you were to read these verses, you'd see these poetic word plays in order to help make Micah's point of Judah's destruction, showing how the very meaning of these towns' names are tied to what would happen to Judah in the end. For instance, in verse 11, if you were to read verse 11, you'd notice that those of Zainan, name meaning come out, will not be able to come out. So this destruction, it, we know this is not news to us because we've been hearing these, the same thing pr theme presented to us these last several weeks that we've been studying the minor prophets. We also have an amazing vantage point because we're 2,750 years, give or take, after this happened. So, of course, we know what happened because we're on the other side of it. But let us take a moment to understand why this judgment was coming. You see, the Canaanite religion and idolatry from the surrounding nations around Israel, it had creeped into Israel and Judah. And God had said from the beginning to not partake in the religion, not to partake in the, the, the things that the surrounding nations were doing because it would, it would end in social injustice. It would end in false religion and practices uh, that were just like the enemy nations around them. And th it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. It says, if you, uh, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations that are about to invade, you are about to invade and dispossess. And when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. Saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord their God in this way, because in worshiping their gods, 
They do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 4, which is just a, a few verses earlier, and the chapter says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Now, God had warned Israel what not to do, as we just read. But even still, I want to read from, for you from the book of Micah some of the deep social injustices that the Israelites had come to partake in. Because they had begun to live in the ways of the enemy nation around them, turning away from worshiping God wholeheartedly. And so in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes, and they rob them of their inheritance. So you see just all kinds of just sexual sin going on, all kinds of stealing, all kinds of taking property and robbing people and defrauding people. And then if you turn over to chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, it says, Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her, here, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. They, yet they look to the, for the Lord's support and say, it is, is not the Lord among us. No disaster will come upon us. And then in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, there's some more social injustices that are talked about. <clears throat> it says... In verse 11, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. And their tongues speak deceitfully. And then last, it says in chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. It says, everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dic dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Now, you would expect this of non-believers, these kinds of practices. But the things I just read to you were things that were being done by the Israelites. God's chosen people. Things were not good. And for this reason, Micah spoke three different distinct messages, also known as oracles, throughout the time of his prophetic ministry. So these messages are broke down and captured for us in the book of Micah as follows. Now the first prophecy or, or oracle comes in chapters 1 and 2. The second comes in chapters 3 through 5, and the last, or the third, comes in chapters 6 and 7. And two commentators say 
say, talk about how it's bro broken down by saying each section or message begins with a summons to hear, followed by an oracle of doom, and then ends with a statement of hope. Now, since we don't have time to discuss the entire book of Micah this morning, we're going to focus on his third message that Micah spoke in Micah chapters 6 and 7. And within this section, we'll focus in on the first part uh, of the message, or the summons to hear, and the heart of what God is trying to say to the Israelites through Micah. And this comes from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But before I read this passage, I, I think it's helpful to point out that these verses, they speak to uh, a legal case or a controversy, uh, and Micah is chosen to speak on behalf of God. I never realized this before. It's set up as a, a legal case or controversy. Micah speaking on behalf of God. The mountains act as the witnesses to the Lord's accusations against Israel, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And this fits ever so perfectly with the idea of a covenant. A covenant was a legal document and a binding agreement. Now, in our case here, God's wanting to know why the Israelites have broken covenant with him. I'm going to read really quickly for you Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, listen to what the Lord says. So with what I just explained to you, try to think of a little bit of a courtroom. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent, you, I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam, my, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, God is asking Israel how he has burdened them and also takes the time to explain to them all the amazing things that he had done for them, as well as the people and the leaders that he had sent to them in order to help them get to the promised land. And we're told throughout the Old Testament, this, this land, this promised land, was a, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a beautiful land. And God explains how he had upheld his part of the covenant promise and how he had been faithful to them. Now, continuing on in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, our prophet starts off with a rhetorical question to make a point and to get their attention. It says in verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Micah asks the people what the Lord requires of them and desires from them. And they were in for a rude awakening. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you before. You ask a question thinking, or you start, you know, you think it's, it's one way, and then you're up for a rude awakening. 
uh, Micah, <laughs> you're going to see here in verses, verses 6, he says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now let's pause there. <laughs> you see that the people thought it was burnt offerings and sacrifices and oil that made them right and that forgave them. More specifically, thought, they probably thought that they could just do whatever they wanted, live their lives of sin, and as long as they made things right by doing the prop proper sacrifices, by having the proper offerings, and following out the things that were set before them in the Torah for them to do, doing the right actions before God, that they were okay. As long as they said that they were sorry, right? Now in these verses, Micah answers the way that the Israelites would have answered. You got to realize that. He's answering the way that the Israelites would have answered, alluding to the fact that they thought that they could just present the best offerings, right? He alludes to that. Calves a year old, which would have been the choicest and most expensive sacrifice. If we just offer the best sacrifice, will God be pleased? And he goes on and says, or a lot of offerings. He, he alludes to a thousand rams. If we just give a thousand rams, which means if we just gave the Lord many offerings, that would suffice. <laughs> but what we're about to read shows that they couldn't have been further from the truth. They were mixing up external religion and putting it in the place of true religion. They were trying to act the right way instead of develop the right heart for God. And they were only acting the right way because they knew that this is what it took to repent and be forgiven by God. It even mentions in verse 7 them thinking that they could sacrifice their firstborn child to God as an offering for their sin, which shows just how twisted they had become in their thinking and of what they thought would please the Lord and just how far they had wandered into the ways and into the practices of the enemy nations and the religions around them. Even in the midst of everything that Israel had done wrong, even though everything God had done for them, God still tells them in verse 8 what he longs for them to do. In verse 8, he shares what would make things right. Verse 8 says, He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's focus on each of those really quickly. To do justice. A lot of times when we think of justice, we just think of the court system and we think of justice being done on our behalf or somebody else's behalf and somebody else doing the justice, bringing about the justice for us. But this is only part of what justice means because what justice is really meaning in these verses is to be a person that 
does justice, a person that brings about justice to others in the way that you live your day-to-day life. To live out things that are right, to live out things that are good, to live out in a way that's fair, that's honest, that's loving and true and holy. Now we see this in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, when it says, Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. It's this idea that we are called to do what is right. We are called to do justice. We are called to bring about justice in our day-to-day lives. It also says to love mercy. And that basically just means to freely and willingly show kindness to others. And we see this in the end of Micah chapter 7, verse 18, where it says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. I love that. This idea of God freely and willingly showing kindness to us, even though we don't deserve it. And then to walk humbly with God, to to live in conscious fellowship with God, putting his ways before our own, laying ourselves low, and putting others and their needs before ourselves. This is what God wanted the Israelites to do. And this is what it meant to fear the Lord and to live for him and him alone. It meant to live upright before him, to have a right heart over a loophole of repentant action. But if we were to read on in Micah chapter 6, verses 10 through 16, if we were to keep reading, we would see that the oracle of doom is that God will destroy them and that they were going to be taken out into exile because they were not doing these things and they were instead participating in self-indulging disobedience. So therefore, in verse 15, it says that they would plant, but they would not harvest because they were going to be exiled. Chapter 7, verse 2 shows that not one upright person remained and even, even though in all of this that is being said that's going to be done with the Israelites, I just want to make note real quick that in chapter 7, verses 8 through 20, we see that this message ends with a statement of hope. That in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 7 of Micah, God promises them to be restored before they are ever exiled. That's crazy to me. Like God shows his promise to them and how they would be restored before they're ever even taken out. He lets them know that he's going to bring them back. And this verses uh, 18 through 20 of chapter 7 is actually a version of our series theme, spoken yet again. Remember how we've been learning what God is like through these minor prophets, how he is gracious, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And it says in verses 18 through 20, who is a God like you who pardons sin, and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. 
you do not stray angry forever, but delight to show mercy, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Micah leaves the people with hope, even in the midst of their impending doom, judgment, and exile. Catch this. God plans to give them justice, which is exile, and mercy, which is restoration to the promised land, with the promise that the end result will then be walking humbly with him once more. What we see from this morning's minor prophet is that we as Christians are not just supposed to live in a way that uh, we want and then simply come to God and ask for forgiveness when we mess up, living only for ourselves, but that we should be people that are living in the way that God wants us to, bringing justice in the lives of others, living in ways that are right, living in ways that are good, fair, honest, loving, true, and holy. We should also be people that are freely and willingly showing kindness to others, bringing mercy to others. Some key places in the Bible that this is talked about is in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, which I just uh, talked about. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 16, Hosea 6, 6, and James 1, 27. Those are in your, your sermon notes and the further passages. But the question then becomes, who are we modeling justice and mercy to in our daily lives? We want to we get practical. So I thought of a few modern-day examples for how to bring justice and mercy to others, how to join with people or with organizations that are bringing justice and mercy to others. Because if that's what we're called to do, then how can we do that? I thought about, the first thing that came to my mind was the International Justice Mission, IJM. And this organization, if you've never heard about it, is all about uh, helping free people from slavery, uh, from people who are experiencing this reality. And it could be labor slavery. It could also be the, the sex slave trade. But maybe this would be a good place to put some funds or to support and to bring justice and mercy to our world. I thought about Compassion International, World Vision, Food for the Hungry, Open Arms, which is the Whitemans uh, in, in Africa, and about uh, sponsoring a child because there's so many places in our world, so many children in our world that are facing hunger and that need education. And that could be a way that we could bring justice or mercy and uh, be people of justice and mercy. I thought about Charity Water because there's this organization out here now that brings clean water and wells to places in the world that don't have it. I thought about Convoy of Hope and Samaritan's Person, again, World Vision, and there's others, but, but organizations that bring about natural disaster response and relief. And there's so many places that we can do justice in that way. I thought about community outreaches closer to home, Love, Inc., right in our backyard, food pantries, homeless shelters. I thought about the Micah Project, this lemonade stand that's going to be out in the parking lot today after service, raising funds to help with this amazing organization and cause. And I encourage you to stop by, ask questions, support this cause. And I hope that we'll all choose to give one or two to one or two or a few of these organizations uh, to bring justice and mercy to our world because our world needs it. 
And people need to be funding these organizations because that's what we're called to do as Christians. But here's the deal. If we're not careful, myself included, these are all organizations that we can very easily just choose to give money to, maybe even on a monthly basis, and check a box that we did our part, that we acted in that way, and then kind of forget about it. And this is easier to do in the United States because we're, we're so blessed, most of us, with more money than, rest, than most people in the rest of the world. And we can many times give to these kinds of things or these kinds of causes without really feeling it or without really thinking about it. But many times, <clears throat> this is the kind of an approach that although meeting a need and being an outward action doesn't necessarily lead us to being transformed or changing and acting more like Jesus in our actions and in our character and our heart becoming more like him. What it takes to be people of justice and mercy is going a step further, giving and participating in things that take time, that take building a relationship with someone else, and that take sacrifice. Justice and mercy and the Lord's explanation, they're hard to do. And that's why you don't see everybody doing it. Because if, if it was easy to do, everybody would be doing it. But the Bible reminds us time and time again of the importance of bringing justice and mercy to others. Now, another thing to think about when giving mercy is that when we're called to give mercy, we're called to give kindness to, to those that don't deserve it. And that's a little harder, okay? I can get behind, I can totally get behind giving to people, helping people that deserve it, but mercy includes giving and helping people, showing kindness to people in our lives that don't deserve it. And this is the very definition of mercy. Mercy's definition is compassion towards someone that is within your power to punish or harm. My paraphrase, people that don't deserve it. And we all know why we're called to love in this way. It's because we don't deserve Jesus' love. We didn't deserve his justice or his mercy either, and yet he still gave it to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not deserving it. Christ died for us. Since God gave us mercy, even though we didn't deserve it, we too should show mercy to others even though they don't deserve it. This is the type of God that we're going to sing about in a moment. This is a God that is worth worshiping with our praise as well as with our lives. And he is a God that is worth sharing with others the one way that we can share him with others is through justice and mercy and bringing it with us everywhere that we go. It could be the homeless. It could be someone that you meet and in learning their story and finding out a real intangible need, you realize you can meet it. It could be someone that is really hurting and not just handing them money, but taking the extra time to get to know them 
to build a relationship with them, to sacrifice with them and for them. And in the end, wouldn't it be neat not to just give them good news and to help them in the moment, but to also be able to give them the best news of all, the gospel, and then accept it? Because you showed them what Jesus is really like, an outpouring of justice and mercy, something that is other than this world. That would be amazing. Join me in prayer.